0: The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com.
1: Bible Study Evangelista show. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible Study Evangelista, and we are in our seventh week in our Freedom from Anxiety series, and today we're going to be talking about uh, rest in our bodies. And I actually did not intend to go in this direction um, today, but I am seeing something in my one-on-one consultations, and I also saw a study just today, actually, that I wanted to bring to your attention, when we talk about rest in body, we have somewhat touched on the connection between our thoughts and our and our emotions, and our bodies, and how we how our bodies react. To constant stress. And one of the things that I said in one of the earlier shows was that this constant stress response, the fight or flight that we stay in when we're in anxiety and fear regularly, is that it attacks our immune systems. And that's because all of our energy, our physical energy is going toward protection and fight or flight. And what I just found today was almost utterly shocking. I couldn't believe this. But I'm going to share it with you because I I want you to know that in a huge new study that was just published of 5 million COVID-19 patients between March 20th, I'm sorry, March 2020 and March 2021, it used to be that obesity is the number one predictor of mortality once someone goes into the hospital. But in this new study, what they have found is that fear is now tied for number one with obesity in predicting mortality once someone goes into the hospital. So fear and anxiety contribute. You can see how fear and anxiety contribute to the lack of immunity in one's body. That unrest interiorly manifests and contributes to unrest in our bodies So it is very important that we practice these tools for battling anxiety and fear because it affects our bodies negatively and it keeps us from being able to fight off regular stuff, but also specifically COVID. I will attach this study and the link to it in the show notes for this week so that you can look at it. I I debated whether or not I should even tell you because some of you have struggled with anxiety and fear for a long time and and you're finally seeing some victory and you're getting a handle on it. And I I didn't want to contribute to it, but I do want to encourage you in your determination to grow out of anxiety and fear because it is really, really bad for your body. And we can see now that it actually even contributes to mortality as a major contributing factor. It is, I just was blown away by this because we know that comorbidities cause a more severe reaction to this virus. And yet now we can see that the interior issues are are on par with the number one Um. number one predictor of mortality so we really need to pay attention to our fear and anxiety and I I know you have I know you've been following the the uh, series here but I just wanted to encourage you because we've always known it we've always known the connection between the body and the mind and the emotions and the spirit all of that is Interconnected, and that's why we've been doing this series, and that's why Just Rest concentrates on all four. Because if you don't take a holistic approach to battling anxiety and fear, then it's much, much harder to ever get victory over it in a permanent and lasting way. So, we have been talking then about getting separation between the thoughts and the emotions, interrupting the thoughts, diverting the thoughts, and one of the metaphors that I gave you was puppies. And I actually put this in the social media stuff for this week too. But I want to just reiterate that thoughts are like puppies and you don't beat a puppy for peeing in the floor or for chewing up your shoe. You take the shoe away from the puppy or you take the puppy outside to pee. However, I want to also kind of just flesh out that metaphor a little more and say that emotions are also like puppies, but in a slightly different way. Whereas in thoughts, you want to divert the puppy. You want to take it outside rather than letting it pee in the floor in the house. And you want to remove the shoe from the puppy rather than beating the puppy for chewing up your shoe, because that's what puppies do. They pee in the floor and they chew up our stuff. But When we're talking about emotions, we need to go just a little bit further. Emotions are like puppies in that you can't ask the puppy not to pee. You can't prevent the puppy from peeing. The puppy has to pee. You just allow the puppy to pee outside. And that means that your emotions cannot be ignored. They cannot be stuffed. They cannot be um, denied. They must be expressed. And the safe place to express emotion we've been talking in the last two weeks is with God. You sin not, S, T, tell God, O, offer the sacrifice, and P, put your trust in God. Over and over and over again, God initiates a conversation with his people in the scriptures, and he asks them about their anger and their fear, because fear is under anger, and he wants us to tell him how we're feeling it's not because he doesn't know it's not because he he is manipulating us or or demanding obedience to uh from us in telling him what we need or how we feel. It's because we want to invite God into those emotions and these situations. And so prayer then is that invitation to allow God to work in a situation. It's not a matter of God just wanting you to come to him because he's all powerful and he demands that we ask, even though he already knows what we need. It's not that. It's that we have free will, and unless we allow God into the, these situations and emotions, they go underground. The emotions go underground, and so we have to have a place, safe place to put it. We we take our emotions to God. We take them to Him. That is letting the puppy pee when you when you allow yourself to acknowledge your emotions. It doesn't mean you let them overwhelm you. It means that you acknowledge it. Yes, I'm afraid. I actually have been I've been telling people this, I, gosh, forever. But because of my consultations, the one-on-one consultations, I've been saying it a lot because a lot of us are really dealing with fear in politics and our church and all the stuff going on right now, the pandemic. It's all, it's just all converging to force us into fear almost, but you do not have to be harassed by fear. You have the authority over your thoughts and your emotions. So you control your thoughts and then you acknowledge your emotions. You let the puppy pee, but you put the puppy outside so the puppy doesn't pee in the house. We don't want the emotions all over everything. We want the emotions to have a safe place to be expressed so that they don't go underground and then, on the other hand, we don't explode or vomit on other people around us. They have to have a safe place to go. The puppy has to pee. You can't prevent the puppy from peeing or you'll kill it. So you have to allow yourself to acknowledge how you're truly feeling. That's the secret to not allowing your emotions to control you. That's the secret. You have to have a place to express it. It's not that we're pretending we're not afraid. It's that we go to God with our fear. We go to him. We ask him for his perspective. We're reading the readings every day because he's speaking to us there. And as we do so, he He will transform those emotions. Now, I, I was about to tell you that when, when something happens in my world that starts to interrupt my peace. I know it immediately and I hate the way it feels. I absolutely hate it. I don't like if someone is offensive and and maybe they meant or did not mean to be offensive, but it was offensive and you're angry. I'm angry, let's say. It's it's just irritating or it's rude or whatever and and you you think about the exchange that you had with that person and the more you think about it the more you emote over it and the the more permanent the memory and the emotion become so as soon as i feel that feeling of irritation or anger or anxiety or fear or whatever i immediately acknowledge it yes this was irritating i evaluate it did this person mean to do it and do i need to do something do i need to set a boundary do i need to address it in some sort of practical way, if I do, then I decide with God how to offer the right sacrifice. But if it's one of those things that's just annoying and the the proper charitable thing to do is to just let it go, it's still hard to get rid of the emotion over something like that. So what I do is I imagine myself taking it to Mary and I just lay it at her feet and I ask her, Please take this away from me. I'm not going to think about it. Please take the emotion. And I turn my attention to something else. I divert my thoughts, just like the puppy is diverted. I divert my thoughts. Ten minutes later, I will start thinking about it again, and I'll get irritated again. And right away, I take it right back to Mary. I'm not going to think about this. Please handle this for me. Please handle the emotion. I do that over and over until I realize just a little while later that, hey, it's completely gone. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not emoting about it. It's over. That is how to control thoughts and emotions in those situations. More on that when we get back.
0: Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. The
1: more you emote over an offense or over something that you perceive to be a danger. The more you emote over it, the more power it has over your thoughts and your emotions. So it's important to interrupt the process right away. Take it to Mary and leave it with her. And in 10 minutes or two minutes or 20 minutes, when you think about it again and your heart starts to race all over again and you start to get mad again over what happened or afraid or whatever, take it right back. Because that is where you can feel the physical reaction in your body. You can tell that there's a change. Your heart starts to beat faster. Your breathing is more shallow. And the longer you think about it and emote about it, the more physical reaction there is. So you want to interrupt that situation. Now, here is another issue that I'm seeing probably. I I would say this is an issue in almost every single uh, private consultation that I have with a female. Often, I am seeing people with neck issues shoulder issues, and back issues. And it's so interesting to me because as soon as I hear that, I almost automatically begin probing for the relationship in the marriage. Because what I know is that neck issues, we've talked about this before through the series, but I'll, re- I'll repeat it. Neck issues have to do with the will. The will, the, remember how the Bible talks about, all the time about how the Israelites were stiff-necked people. They were stiff-necked not because they were stupid and they wouldn't do what God said, but because they were stubborn and they wouldn't do what God said. And one of the main things that I see in every single relationship with in a woman's marriage that is affecting other things that she never thought of, is her relationship to her husband. The will gets out of balance, and it does so because of Eve. If you look at chapter 3 in Genesis, when God confronts Eve with her sin, now he addresses the serpent first, but then he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's in chapter 3, verse 16 of Genesis. The will is related to the neck. And when a woman's desire is for her husband, that word there actually means seeking to rule over. Your desire shall be to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, if you look around at our country, and maybe even your own marriage, probably your own marriage, because this is not something that we hear in teaching very often, but I am seeing it's making a mess of our families and our parishes and our country and our world. What we see there is that the woman's desire is to rule over her husband. That's part of the correction that God pronounces in the Garden of Eden because of the sin. And he says that the man will rule over you. Now, this is a Sonia theory. This is not something that's taught dogmatically by the church or anything like that. But because of five, uh, Ephesians 5, and and chapter 5 period, where Paul talks about the way the marriage and family is structured in authority, we have Jesus as the head, the man is the head over the family and the marriage, the wife and the children, the woman is head in some ways over the children so it's god first then the man then the woman then the children that's the proper hierarchy now you have to understand that everything that god creates exists in a hierarchy the angels they fell and rebelled against that hierarchy and they fell from heaven because of it the same thing happens in a family when a woman desires to rule over her husband now we would never say to ourselves I'm gonna rule over my husband we would never say that but what we do is we hear his opinion and we do what we want anyway and when we do that that is a matter of the will of rebellion to authority and of the neck and the structure the the skeletal structure of your body and of your family That is an attack on your marriage and family. When you get out from under the proper authority of your husband, everything is screwed up. The hierarchy is not operating properly, and it causes the structure of the marriage and the family and the body, too, to get out of whack. Now, I'm not saying that if you have back issues that that you have an authority problem, but I am saying look at it. Look at it and ask yourself, do I have an authority problem with my husband? And this is very difficult for women because we, John Paul II told us that God has given humanity to woman. He says that because every man comes from a woman. But he's also, he also means that woman has that nurturing gift and he has, God has given that to us as a gift really to the man, to the family, and to the world. But we get out of order when we demand to have our way. So here's what we do to get that back in order. First of all, you have to see it and acknowledge it. Yes, I have manipulated, I have demanded, I have cried, I have snuck around. I have done all these things in these different ways in my own marriage and family to make sure that I got my way. Now, most of the time when we see that a proper decision is so-and-so, we may talk it over with our husbands, but often we just do it because we're adults and we live in America and we've been taught that we're equal and that we should have an equal say and that's true I'm not saying that we don't have an equal say Paul says so in Ephesians the same thing that we obviously we subordinate ourselves to one another but the final word is the man's if you make decisions in say you own a company or a business or your family um, decisions about your children decisions about your money decisions about anything if you make the decision. Especially if you make it out from underneath your husband, if you do the opposite or something different than what he has said as a final answer, then you are out from underneath the protection that that hierarchy affords your family. Now that opens you and your family up to demonic attack. It opens you up to physical attack. It opens up all kinds of doors I mentioned this just briefly in the very first show, but I want to mention it again because I'm seeing it in physical uh, physical symptoms in people that that have to do with the neck. The tension, migraines, the tension in the neck, the tension in the shoulders, the back aches, the structural issues with the back, that kind of thing. I'm seeing some, some help, some physical help as soon as the woman gets back underneath the authority of her husband. So if you have a decision, go to your husband, tell him how you feel. Tell him everything. Tell him how strongly you feel about the decision that should be made. But when he makes the final decision, you better back off. You better back off and allow him to make the decision, whether it's right or wrong, and trust that God will work through it because of your humility. Now, our model here is Mary. This issue of authority was the main My main issue, it always has been, you know that I have a father wound and part of my formation, I mean, most of my formation has been on the issue of authority because of my father wound and because it made me militant in my determination that I would never be manipulated or controlled by another man for the rest of my life. I was just done. I was so done with that. And it made me rebellious. It made me raging angry. And that's where God began. And so for 15 years, he had been working with me on submission to proper authority. So when I was confronted with the Catholic Church, and I went back to what they call the Reformation and began reading the readings of Martin Luther, all of this is in Just Rest in the chapter on Rest from Emotions. But when I went to looking for... The writings of Martin Luther, I wanted to read them in his own words. I wanted the primary source. I didn't want somebody from the Protestant church telling me what Martin Luther said and thought and taught. And I didn't want somebody from the Catholic church telling me what Martin Luther said and taught and thought. I wanted to read it in his own words so that I could know the truth. And when I went and read Martin Luther, what I found was a, a very troubled, very anxiety and fear ridden person with OCD, with perfectionism, with lots of rage and anger, and it stemmed from a father wound exactly like my own. So, I recognized then that the Reformation could have been nothing more than a division of the Catholic Church, and division is demonic, according to the scriptures. So, I knew that the beginnings of the Protestant churches— and I know some of you are Protestant, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you my thought process, and I'm telling you how I learned submission to authority and and the rest in my body and soul. And it was partly in this, because submission to proper authority is huge for us women. We have to learn this to keep ourselves healthy, to keep our marriages and our families healthy, and to, to help fix this mess we've made by getting everything out of order, So as I read Martin Luther, I saw how troubled he was, I saw how angry he was, and I saw that this militance came from woundedness with his own father, and that caused him to rebel against the hierarchy of the church and the authority of the church, the proper authority that God had put in place. Were they right? No, they weren't. But Martin Luther did not handle that situation properly. We'll talk about that when we get back. What to do when the person in authority over you is making the wrong decision. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible study spirits that taste like cake. Said, this was the probably the hardest, most difficult part of my entire conversion to the Catholic Church because I had seen two church splits in our Baptist church, in our small little country church, that made me question the foundation of how everything was set up in Protestantism. It made me question the Reformation. I went back. I looked at Martin Luther. I looked at his motivations. I looked at his words. I looked at how he was thinking and what he was feeling through what he said. I acknowledged and I saw very clearly that Martin Luther had a father wound. It caused him to rebel against the hierarchy and the authority of the the church that he was part of. And that's exactly what God had corrected me for for the past 10 years. And so I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew that that Reformation was nothing but a division. And that division is demonic. And so it is, it is it was the wrong thing. So how should have Martin Luther have handled that situation? Well, Mary is our model, and I'll get to that in a moment. But Martin Luther should have, he should have begun with his own priest in offering his view and whatever else he wanted to offer as far as how he saw things. He Should start He should have started there, and if his pastor did not handle it the way he felt it should be handled, then he should have gone to the next step up. And let's just say that that was a bishop. He should have gone to his bishop, made the very same case, and waited for the bishop to make a decision. If the bishop did not act in a way that he felt was necessary and appropriate, then he should take the next step up, which let's just say, for all intents and purposes, it's the pope. He should have gotten to the pope, gone to the pope, which I don't know how how likely this is, or if that's even possible. But if you could, then let's say that that's the next step up. You go the next step up, you go all the way to the top with your concerns. You make your case, you state it as strongly as you need to without being raging and angry and ugly. You state your case. And then when that person makes the final decision, you accept that final decision as spoken from Christ himself to you. That is what Martin Luther should have done. But instead, he got on his high horse, he rebelled, and he split the church. Now, did he mean to do that in the beginning? I don't know, but that's what happened. And it happened because of his militants. It happened because he was rebellious. It happened because he was wounded in his relationship to his father. Now, as I was coming into the Catholic Church, I saw clearly that I needed to be Catholic. The Bible says in James that for he who knows what to do and does not do it, it is sin. So I knew this was the right thing to do. It was, and, and I wasn't even talking about my family. I was just talking about me. My relationship with God required that I become Catholic. So I assented to that. And I told my husband, and we didn't really talk about it because we couldn't. This is a situation, I can't tell you how difficult this was for me because I was was afraid that I was being Martin Luther in my family. That was my fear. And I kept going to God saying, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I I just kept coming back to that verse. If you know the right thing and you don't do it, then it's sin. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to do it. But I have to believe that you're going to take care of whatever happens next, because this is a division in my family. I knew my husband would see it that way. I saw it that way. And my, my church saw it that way. The denomination that I had left, they all saw it that way. And, and I felt that way. I, I didn't know what to do. You know, all I knew is that this was the right thing and I had to do it. But I, I was so concerned with all of the authority issues because of all that I had learned to this point. And that is where Mary saved me, (laughs) because Mary accepted the will of God and she did what God asked her to do. She said yes, and she accepted the consequences that went with that, which for her was some question about the legitimacy of her pregnancy. And we know that's true because of John chapter eight, where the Pharisees confront Jesus and they go, Well, our father is Abraham. We don't know who your father is. So they're accusing him of illegitimacy. So there had to have been some sort of question about Mary's legitimacy, or I'm sorry, Jesus's legitimacy where Mary was concerned. And Mary had to endure those consequences. And she was willing to do it. She said yes, knowing that that could happen. And she also said yes, not knowing what would happen with Joseph. So I did the same. I said yes to the Lord. I, I made plans to come into the church. I entered RCIA. And, and at that point, my husband knew. Now, he never told me I could not do it. And I know that God protected me from that because had he done that, I don't know what I would have done. I think I probably would have just gone insane. I can't win for losing, you know. But I, I knew that as long as he didn't disallow it, that I, I was not going to have to confront that. So I went ahead and did what I knew to do. I came into the Catholic church. It was very, very strained on my marriage, on my on everything. And the story most of that is in Just Rest. But I just trusted with Mary. I hid in her mantle and I prayed that the Lord would somehow bring my family back together because I felt like I had divided it. This is how you handle a situation in your marriage where you must do the right thing. This is not a matter of your will or a matter of what you want. This is in matters of right and wrong. If it's a matter of right and wrong, then you must do the right thing. And then you entrust God with all of the consequences. That is what Martin Luther should have done. And he didn't. That is what Mary did do. And what happened is that God brought the truth to Joseph in a dream. He brought them back together not that they were ever separated but he brought them together in mind and and um and goal we'll say and he did the same thing for me he he did the exact same thing for me and look at Mary now i mean look at her and i say this over and over again you cannot trust god too much if you submit to a decision that your husband has made, or your pastor even has made, that you disagree with, you go to them, you state your case, you state it strongly if you need to, and if it's a pastor, then maybe you go to the bishop. If you, if you go to the bishop and he doesn't do what you think should be done, then maybe go to the pope. I don't know, but you go up the ladder as far as you can, and when you've gotten your final answer, that's your answer. Don't then go try to build a posse and have yourself a battle because if you're doing that, then you are in error. And this is what I see all the time in these one-on-one consultations. A woman has an opinion. She doesn't agree with the opinion of her husband and she goes off and she does it anyway. And she feels like she has the right and we do. We have free will. You can certainly do that. But I'm telling you this to tell you that your issues with your neck and your back and your shoulders are likely tied to some kind of issue with authority because it's a matter of the will. Your will in the Bible is symbolic is symbolized, I'm sorry, by the neck. When you have issues in that area, that is an area of authority. So take a look at that in your own family, in your own marriage. I'm not saying that you have to be a doormat at all. State your case, state your opinion, state what you think needs to be done. Cooperate with your husband in finding a solution that works for everyone. But if he has made a final decision, I exhort you in the strongest terms to submit to that as Christ, because that is what the scriptures tell us to do. Now, I want to reiterate, I'm not talking about situations of abuse. If you're living with abuse from a husband, your duty is to get out. Your duty is to protect your children and yourself and to stop enabling him to sin against you. If you allow your husband to continue to sin against you and your children in a in a major moral way, say you're enabling alcoholism or you're enabling cheating or something like that. If you continue to allow that without setting a boundary and expecting different behavior, if you're doing that, then you're you're complicit in their sin. So that is a different situation. I'm talking about situations where we want our way and we think we have the right solution and they won't listen to us. That's what I'm talking about. The whole thing with boundaries we'll look at in another show because I'm not going to have time today to go through all that. I don't think. Maybe maybe I can get into it a little bit. But for right now, what I'm trying to point out is the physical issues with authority now, we also know that fear and anxiety drive bowel issues, irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, all of that stuff is that those are physical symptoms of all this stress. Also, things like um, things like autoimmune, we'll call them diseases, autoimmune issues that they can't really find a cause for, things like that, that the doctors, they go, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what this is. These are spiritual, spiritually rooted, I'll say that, spiritually and emotionally and, and mentally rooted. That's where that stuff comes from. Your body is trying to tell you something is very wrong, but you go to the doctor and they have no idea what's wrong with you. They can't find any real physical issue. And when that's the case, you have to look at other things. You have to consider your thoughts and your emotions And how your spirit and your thoughts and emotions contribute to the things in your body. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't physical issues too. And that's why I've said from the very beginning, if you have physical issues, go to a doctor. (laughs) If you have emotional mental issues that you need help with, go to a therapist. These things are ways that God helps us heal. I'm just pointing out that, that our mental emotional and spiritual issues affect our bodies and this is a big one this whole neck and shoulders and back issue thing is a big one that i see all the time in private consultation i'm just letting you know Scripture is Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, it's interesting that in situations where you know, let's say corruption, let's say corruption in your marriage, corruption in, uh, let's just say for your marriage, there's corruption in the marriage, there's cheating. Or some kind of immorality or whatever. And you know the right thing to do. So what do you do with this verse that says all authority comes from God? This is where you do the right thing and you entrust the consequences to God. Because the consequences will come. When I came into the Catholic Church, I thought I had lost absolutely everything. And it felt that way. I was worried about being divorced. My denominational publisher dropped me. The people that I went to church with... Most of them pretended like they didn't see me at the grocery store or they, well, it was just a mess. It was an absolute mess. But I knew that I had done the right thing and that God would work it out eventually in one way or another, and he did. He brought my husband several years later. It took a while, but he. But my husband never told me that I could not come in. He never told me that the kids couldn't be baptized, and I didn't even have to ask him that. My oldest son said I needed to be baptized, and, and that story's in just rest, too, and I said, okay, where do you want to have it done? And Then he said, I want to do it at the Catholic Church, and I said, well, you're going to have to tell your dad because I'm not telling him because <laughs> I didn't want him to feel like I had had influence on my son. So he did. He told his dad, his dad never said you can't be baptized in the Catholic church. And I was pregnant at the same time. So once the baby was born, I had them both baptized in the Catholic church. That made three Catholics to one non-Catholic in our family. And I had to trust that God would bring the family back together in unity one way or another. And if he didn't, that that itself too would also be worked out in some way. I entrusted all of the consequences to God. So if you're in a situation where you know that something is immoral and you have to do something about it, then you must, you must, or else it's a matter of sin. And otherwise, if it's something that you just, you feel strongly about, but it's not necessarily immoral or illegal or anything like that, then you state your case. Jesus told us exactly how to deal with situations like that in Matthew chapter 18. He said, you go to your brother and you tell him his fault between you and him. Matthew 18, uh, 15. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two witnesses by himself that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the, this is a situation where if you are married to someone who is Involved in immoral or illegal behavior, and you have confronted him, and he won't do anything about it. Then you take a witness. Perhaps you go to your priest. Perhaps you take family along. I don't know what it looks like. I'm just telling you. This is the the way Jesus told us to deal with these authority issues. And so we take someone with us. If that doesn't work, you take him to the church. If that doesn't work, then you put him away. There is a boundary that needs to be put in place. You separate from them. Kick them out if it's necessary. If if it's necessary, then do so. But we don't do it with the intention of, of divorce or anything like that. You do it with the intention of reconciliation. Someone has to put boundaries in place. And sometimes that's us. We have to put those boundaries in place and then entrust the consequences to God. But we cannot be complicit in another person's sin, unrepented sin that we enable we are complicit in. So we have to put boundaries in place. I see quite a bit of that too, where there's a mess in a marriage, say the husband's alcoholic or the husband's cheating and the wife goes, well, I can't leave because marriage is a sacrament. Well, yes, it is. But he is the one who is degrading that sacrament. And so a boundary needs to be put in place. There is nothing in the church teaching that says you cannot put a boundary in place and separate from a a spouse who is transgressing a marriage like that. The only thing that we're told we must do is not begin another relationship. And the point of putting a boundary and a separation like that in place is to draw the other party to reconciliation and repentance. That's the goal. Now, sometimes that never happens, but that's the consequence that you leave to God. That's the consequence that you completely leave to him and know that he will work it out at some point for good. But you, however, must not, as a matter of mortal sin, begin another relationship. Because if you do, then you're committing adultery. So I know it's a miserable situation. It's miserable either way. But these, this is how you deal with issues of authority. You start with the smallest, closest unit first. You go to the next level and the next and the next until you've reached the highest level. And then you accept the decision as that of Christ. If it's in a marriage, you go to your husband, you state your case, you give your opinion, and he makes the final decision. And when he's made it, you better be quiet and you better submit to it or else you're rebelling against Christ through his word, through, his, through the husband. Now, as I said, that's different in a, in a matter of immorality or something illegal. That's a whole different case because then we're, we're duty bound upon pain of sin. We're duty bound upon pain of sin to disallow that as much as is in our power. I hope that is helpful. And I, I, I just, I really and truly did not mean to go for an entire 48 minutes on that subject, but I'm seeing so much of it. I just wanted, I wanted to point it out because that's an area, authority, this is an area in our marriages, in our families, in our country, in our world, that we have gotten so out of balance. And that's why we're in the mess that we're in. Because back in the Garden of Eden, God said, your desire will be to rule over him, but he will rule over you. And that means he has authority over you. That means that that although they're not as intuitive as we are all the time, they don't always make the right decisions that we think they should make all the time, but they are in authority over us. And if we do not fall into line of that authority, then we have opened ourselves, our bodies, our families and and everything that we have influence over we have invited the attacks of the enemy in that area and so we end up with issues in our necks and our shoulders and our backs that is an authority issue so I'm just pointing it out I'm not I'm just pointing it out (laughs) every situation certainly does not require a separation but most situations that are Well, all situations that have to do with immorality or illegality, those do require boundaries to begin with. And if the boundaries are consistently transgressed, then you may have to step up and go the way of separation or something like that. And I'm not just talking about in a marriage. I'm talking about in any relationship. Boundaries are meant to keep the good things in and the bad things out. And when we're talking about peace, it's very important to build a hedge around our peace. We have to guard it. We have to guard it. And that requires boundaries. Boundaries for ourselves, boundaries for the encroachments of the outside world, whether that's too much activity, too much social media, too much television, or whatever it is. We have to place limits because the limits keep the good things in and the bad things out. And if you have discerned that something sucks the peace out of you, it causes you fear and anxiety, then Place a boundary on it. And if the boundary is consistently um, transgressed, then you may need to separate completely from that thing for a period. And that then is meant to get things back in balance so that you can reevaluate your relationship with that thing or that person. Boundaries are of the Lord. Boundaries are of the Lord. And so we have to be careful to Not be afraid of putting boundaries in place. They are our duty. They're our duty. They help guard our peace. They help guard the peace of our families and our marriages and our lives. And while we're doing that, we have authority over what is ours to have authority over. In a marriage, that's you. You have authority over your thoughts and your emotions, not your husband's and not your children. You can't make them think the way you want them to think. You can't make them feel the way you want them to feel. You can't influence them spiritually, not directly anyway. You can through prayer. But anytime you find yourself in a situation where you're trying to manipulate someone to think your way or feel your way or do something spiritually because you want it or you think it's best, you're encroaching on their personal authority and responsibility for themselves. You don't have authority over anyone but you. And yet, you have complete authority over yourself, over your thoughts, over your emotions, over your spirit and and those things that is your domain and that is the only domain that is yours according to Genesis chapter 3 that's what we have authority over we have some authority over our children until they are of age and are outside our home and once that happens you have no authority over them at all you have some influence but no authority and to push and push and push to get your way to control them and the way they think and the way they feel and what they do that's demonic. That's is control. And God does not control, dear one. He invites. He invites and he suggests trying to force or control in a situation where we have no authority is of the enemy. We control what we have authority over, which is only ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, and our spirits. Until next week, I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible study evangelista.